Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. A horrible scene in Oshawa today. Ryerson University's statue dilemma. And are you fighting with your ex about back to school? All that's coming up. Let's get to it. 148 new cases of COVID-19 in Ontario in the past 24 hours. That is not the number we're looking for. We don't want that number, but the number is not a surprise. I've been saying it for the last couple of days, weeks, in fact, that as we reopen, we have got to expect that the numbers are going to go up. That's what the experts say. And I don't think that, uh, you know, just the general public really have a grasp on that. And especially as we look towards school reopening, 148, as the numbers go up, does that change? your mind about kids going back to school. It shouldn't, and we're going to talk about that. We have been talking a lot about that on this radio program over the course of the week, but I want to get to Oshawa this afternoon, a horrible scene there. The scene, a brick bungalow near the corner of Harmony Road and Park Lane Avenue at around 1.20 this morning, there were multiple reports of gunshots, neighbors calling 911. When police arrived, they discovered five dead in the home. A six-person, a woman, transported to hospital with a gunshot wound to the leg. Here is Constable George Tudos. There's two females involved. One was is deceased in the residence. Another female who had a gunshot wound, she was taken to a hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Let's get the very latest now from Oshawa. Our crime specialist, Catherine McDonald, is there. Catherine, uh, where are you right now? I'm standing about uh, 100 feet from the front of this house, which is, of course, cordoned off with crime tape. Uh, forensic investigative trucks from Durham Regional Police are here, and there are officers canvassing up and down the street looking for people who might have heard anything. And, and just since I've been here, I've spoken to neighbors who live across the street and next door, and that they um, they talk about how they woke up to a banging sound. Uh, there was a pause, and then um, at first they didn't think it was gunshots, and then there was a volley of more shots heard, and then uh, a woman's voice, horrifying screams. They couldn't make out that she was saying anything. She was just screaming. And then shortly thereafter, they heard sirens uh, and they realized it was their neighbor's house. Um, and one, the woman who lives right next door describes the family as a very, you know, quiet, uh, really great family. Uh, four children, three boys and a girl. Uh, the parents are both school teachers. Uh, one woman who was here said she went to high school with uh, the father um, at uh, Monsignor Paul uh, it's, it's a Catholic school here, Monsignor or Paul Dwyer. This is the school he went to and where he taught at. Um, and what, what some of the neighbors say is unusual is there was a vehicle parked in the driveway with Manitoba plates. And so that vehicle was not there last night. So it, it sounds like whoever, uh, police of course say they are not looking for anyone, that the suspect also uh, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. They it, it, that vehicle was towed. It was a white uh, SUV or pickup truck, and they and they say that uh, they they wonder if whoever uh, came in and and committed this quadruple murder, or I should say, uh, you know, I say quadruple, even though five people were dead, one of them is a suspect. So whoever came in, they believe was the outsider. Police are saying that everyone involved uh, was related, but that being said, this person who came in may not be an immediate family member. And is this a family member who drove in from Manitoba in this vehicle in the middle of the night, the night and for some reason came in and, and uh, 
you know, shot the family. And uh, it's just a terrible, terrible thing for everyone on the street because people who knew them say this is the last family where you think something like this could happen. Uh, really nice kids. They were seen outside playing basketball and hockey, active and, and quiet, nice children. Another a young woman came with her mother, and she's about 14 years old. She, uh, the mother told me my daughter was best friends with the girl who lived here. We're, we're not, again, sure exactly who the victims are. We do know, police have said, of the of the five people found dead, three were males, uh, pardon me, four were males, one was a female, and at least two of these people were minors. So is the woman who made it out alive uh, with the gunshot wound the mother? Uh, we don't know. Uh, but we do know at least one one female was found dead and four males. Catherine, I want to quickly play for you. This is neighbor Michelle Harrod describing the family. I talked to them just last week. They were going to go canoe camping, which was something they hadn't done in, uh, you know, 30 years. Um, they were, you know, just a, like a very sweet, nice, nice family. So it doesn't make any sense, that's for sure. And that has been the reaction around the community. Uh, do we have any sense, uh, speaking with Catherine McDonald, our crime specialist here with Global News, uh, any um, scheduled updates from police at this point, Catherine? Yeah, we just had an update uh, a short time ago from Durham Regional Police. Uh, for now, uh, they're still pro- processing the scene. As I don't know if, you're, if you're, the, the people listening are familiar with this, the fact that originally they thought four people were found dead, and then it was only this morning when they went back in uh, that they realized there were, in fact, five dead. So this is a large scene for them to process. Uh, during the math, it, it, if, if someone did come in, if, if someone came from Manitoba and perhaps was involved in this, um, and we know that there are, the family had four children, uh, certainly at least one of the children is unaccounted for. Was that child away at the time? Um, uh, and, and who is the female that survived? Is it the mother or is it the daughter? Uh, these are questions we don't know. Police have not released names. They're still notifying next of kin. Uh, we do know there are family members apparently in the neighborhood. The next door neighbor tells me that there's family one block over. So you can imagine this this, this ripple effect. Uh, if as, as we've been told, these are both teachers, the parents. Think of all the children who would have known them and who are uh, probably today, you know, trying to make sense of this all. Certainly, it's very upsetting for people in this community, especially those who are the family. It's just absolutely devastating. Can we circle back to the truck again? I, I was just not clear. I, are, are you saying that police early this morning have already towed away that, I think you described it as an SUV with Manitoba plates? Right. So around, yeah, around 7.30 this morning, uh, that, that vehicle was being towed by police. Um, talking to neighbors, uh, the woman next to her said she noticed it. Uh, when the police arrived, and of course she talked about the tactical team coming in, she said she was scared for her own safety at that point because she had heard what she thought was shots. And she didn't know if there was a gunman on the loose. Um, so if this vehicle, she said she noticed that vehicle. Other neighbors ha- didn't see it. One neighbor apparently saw it around 1230. So if this person came in and perhaps drove in from Manitoba, and as we've been told, everyone involved is uh, related. Is this, a, is this an uncle? Is this a cousin? Is this someone who drove in? Um, and perhaps there was a family dispute going on. This, these are all questions we don't know. But the, the vehicle has now been towed, and certainly uh, people didn't see it here on the street yesterday or in the driveway. But it was on the driveway uh, when police arrived around 1.20 this morning, and it was blocking the driveway. It was at the end of the driveway. So that's an interesting uh, development, certainly. And, and obviously we're talking about uh, two teachers and, and you talk about the, the ripple effect and, you know, the, the number of lives in the community that, you know, that they or the, that their professional careers would have touched. And so th- this is where we get into some trouble, especially in the media, because it's not going to be long before this is everywhere on social media, but not necessarily released by police. 
Yeah. So, you know, we already have obviously heard the names of the family members uh, who lived here, uh, but we have to be so careful about releasing any names uh, because next of kin need to be notified. And, and uh, you, so you have to be careful about what, when do we go with these names? Of course, we're waiting to hear uh, from Durham Regional Police. We are not putting the names out, but certainly people are talking about uh, the people who lived here. They're giving us names. And so even though uh, names may not be released in, in the media, we've already talked to people who feel like they know who, you know, clearly this, the family that lives here is involved. It's just not clear uh, which family members uh, were, were killed, uh, which one is the, the suspect? Did it have to do with this Manitoba, this person that came in from Manitoba? And if so, how are they related? Because we do know they are related to the family. Uh, the police won't say if it's immediate family or not. I'll let you get back to it. I know you have a lot to cover today. Um, we'll look forward to your report tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6. That's Catherine McDonald, our Global News Crime Specialist. Thanks, Kath. Thank you. Well, it is here, the long weekend, the Labor Day weekend is here, and I hope you just roll right into the weekend with that OG Ananobi style, just that vibe, just just bring that to the weekend. I don't shoot trying to miss. I don't shoot trying to miss. That is OG Ananobi of the Toronto Raptors in the post-game press conference last night after hitting that unbelievable buzzer beater to win it with 0.5 seconds to go. And then when I was asked about it, he's like, "Man, eh, I don't shoot trying to miss. I don't shoot trying to miss. I'm going to just, you know what? I think I'm just going to bring that kind of energy to my whole life from now on. That's my new thing. I just, I'm not going to do anything. I, I don't shoot trying to miss. OG Ananobi. Unbelievable. What a finish. Let's get to the statue update, shall we? Ryerson University now says it will set up a task force to consult with students and staff and faculty and alumni to determine the fate of a statue on the campus for the namesake Egerton Ryerson. Egerton Ryerson is an architect, was an architect, pardon me, of public education and also the residential school system here in this country and recently in a protest in Toronto, it was splashed with some pink paint. There is already, you may know, a plaque at Ryerson that talks about the legacy of Egerton Ryerson in the residential school system. But now the university is going to look at it again. And of course, this brings us back to the discussion that we're having in this country about what do we do with problematic statues. Do we take them down? Do we tear them down like they did in Montreal? Should that happen? Martin Redcon is a columnist with the Toronto Star and a regular contributor to this program, friend of mine. Hey, Martin, how you doing? I'm doing okay, all things considered. How are you, Alan? I'm I'm good. You and I, uh, when, when I was uh, Bureau Chief for Global News especially, we spent a lot of time was walking around the grounds of Queen's Park, and there are some statues there that people have some trouble with. They do with some of the statues, not all of the statues. One of the things I was struck with, and, and I mentioned this in yesterday's column, is is that there's a statue of Queen Victoria that gets no attention, and, and the statue of, let me think, King Edward VII, I'd have to look this up, that gets yeah, King Edward, that one's at the back. That's one of my favorites, Martin, because yeah. uh, that one actually originally, I tell this story all the time, that one originally was in India. 
And after Indian independence, they're like, well, we don't want this. (laughs) And so we took it and put it in the uh, park near our legislature in this province. Yes, and, and, and if you go in, in Sydney, Australia, I was once there on assignment, and there's a statue of Queen Victoria over there, much like the one here. And that one originated in Dublin, Ireland, uh, after years in storage. So there's a history of rethinking and relocating statues around the world, not just in communist countries or in other dictatorships where they are toppled, but also in, in democracies like, like India and Ireland that have a chance to rethink or, or free themselves from the shackles of their history. So the thing is, those statues were moved with cranes, not toppled or dynamited. The, the statue of uh, Sir John A., oh, sorry, there's a statue of Queen Victoria in Montreal that was dynamited in the 1960s during the old FLQ independence uh, protests. So all I'm saying is, is, is that the, stat- the question of statues and public monuments is as old as history itself. And we do need to have that conversation and address and reassess, which I think is what Ryerson is trying to do. I mean, that, I think it's a good thing since you mentioned it, that Ryerson is going to review this. Don't forget, they did it in 2010. So history repeats itself even every decade. They had a full-on look at his legacy. I'm just going to do one tiny little clarification. It's not clear that Ryerson was the architect of the residential school system. In fact, some scholars say, you know, clearly he was involved in designing it. I don't think he anticipated necessarily the outcome, but that's a question of historical debate. But it was Sir John MacDonald who was really the architect of the system and and Ryerson may be part of the collateral damage along with all of the survivors. So that's one way of looking at it, but but, uh, there are a lot of angles to this one. There there are, and and you write in your column that you know, what we should do is what Ryerson is doing is have, you know, deep think about it and consult everybody. But that, you know, there's so much public anger out there that I don't know if that's going to get it done, Martin. You're absolutely right. And we leave and we live in interesting times. But look at what happened in Halifax. There's a statue of Cornwallis uh, that was that was deeply offensive to Micmac indigenous people in Nova Scotia because he, he paid people to scalp indigenous people uh, in 1700. But Halifax City Council did take it down. And I got to admit, I'm a Democrat. So I think if you have a problem with a statue, by all means protest, by all means poke at it. But the challenge for all of us is to persuade politicians and decision makers to reassess and review. But the way to do that is not to thumb our noses at the politicians. I've always believed as a journalist, the way to do it is to persuade the public, to get the public on your side, to make it so unpopular uh, that the statute has to be taken down. If you're right, I'm not sure people are right about Egerton Ryerson. I actually am not. I don't think, I don't mean that rhetorically. I don't know enough about his legacy to really pronounce. I just know I, as a journalist, I ask questions and I've seen there are there's plenty of scholarship saying that it's a bit of a it's mixing things up a little bit and jumping to conclusions. I think we need to educate ourselves. But to your point, remember, Ryerson did this in 2010. They added a new plaque in 2018, just two years ago. And yet people are still really not all that well informed. I'm not saying some of the protesters don't know what they're talking about. I'm just not sure the general public can participate fully 
in an informed way yet about Egerton Ryerson, and I include myself among those who don't know enough about it. So let's find out more. The problem or the challenge for Ryerson and for others is if in two or three or five years, if we, if we resolve to keep him in right now, in five years, we may have to revisit the issue. And so at some point, it becomes a losing battle. I want to play some of the political reaction uh, to what happened, especially with uh, Sir John A. MacDonald, because, you know, it, it becomes then a sort of a, a political uh, football uh, between different parties in the reaction. Let's begin uh, with the reaction from the prime minister to the toppling of the statue of Sir John A. MacDonald in Montreal. But we are uh, a country of laws, uh, and we are a country that needs to respect uh, those laws, even as we seek to improve and change them. And that, those kinds of acts of vandalism are not advancing uh, the path towards greater justice and equality in this country. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Earlier this week, he has been roundly criticized for acts of vandalism, being the strongest term that he used there, that he should have gone much further. Your reaction to that, Martin? I actually thought it was a measured reaction. Uh, I, I think, as you yourself have suggested in some of your questions, you have to be mindful of some of the anger that's bubbling up and the resentment. And we have in this country a legacy of residential schools that we are still grappling with. But I remind you, that the judge who presided, now a senator, over the Truth and Reconciliation Committee Commission is opposed to not just toppling a battle of statues, he's also opposed to removing statues. He thinks that's not the way to advance reconciliation and understanding. Judge Murray Sinclair believes that there should just be more statues and more context to understand the, the, the playing field generally. So, Nelson Mandela didn't believe in toppling statues. He believed in assessing them and from an informed point of view when he took over South Africa and was faced with a, a, an array of uh, racist apartheid era statues. Uh, so Martin, because- I just want I just want to play this one because I'm running out of time, but I want to play this one for you because this one made me real mad, and I'm wondering just your reaction to this. This was an ad that the new conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, put out. Listen to this. Over the weekend, protesters tore down and beheaded a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Montreal. Later in Toronto, a statue of the Virgin Mary was decapitated outside a Catholic church. We are very sad, and of course our community was very uh, horrified by what happened. That is an ad from the Conservative Party. Uh, Martin, you may know that uh, protesters had nothing to do with the decapitation of the Virgin Mary. This is my point about the political football here and trying to exploit the anger, perhaps, in a way that is not wise. Well, it's, it's what we would call a wedge issue, where you're driving a wedge between people. And look, doing it as an ad is, is pretty cheesy. I think you don't need to, it means you're targeting people to try to win votes out of a complicated situation. So I'm not a big fan of that and that kind of fundraising. I do think people have to think about vandalism, so-called. And the fact that the problem with vandalism is that one man's vandalism is another man's protest. There's all kinds of vandalism that happens to statues and cemeteries around the world. It's a tactic that can cut both ways. That's why I'm not a fan of it. I, I believe we are all accountable through our elected representatives. And as voters, that's the way to change things. 
Martin Rankin is a columnist with the Toronto Star. You can read his column about, in a democracy, we should not topple unpopular statues. It's online and in the old hard copy newspaper. Remember that thing? That's fun. Martin, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. It is obvious that the pandemic is tough on families. Families, of course, come in all shapes and sizes. In many cases, the kids are between two homes, and there are two separate households, and sometimes those households, they have different ideas about what to do in terms of the pandemic. And all of you out there that have fractured homes who are trying to figure out how do you build a consensus around whether or not, for example, the kids should go back to school. That's the big question all parents have right now. And a lot of parents, you know, even in cohesive families, are having a pretty hard time figuring out what to do. And even within families that are together, it's going to be a thorny issue. I'm looking for your calls at 416-870-6400. Keep in mind that if you do have a separated family, two different homes, that, you know, that can get pretty, that can be pretty acrimonious pretty quickly. And in a precedent-setting ruling, an Ontario Superior Court judge has now sided with a parent who wants her son to return to school over the objections of the child's father who wanted the boy to take classes online. Judge saying, no, I'm going with mom. Who wants the boy to do in-class learning? What does all of that mean? Christy Marina is a family lawyer at McDonald and Partners LLP, and always great to have her on the program. Christy, what do you make of this actual ruling? Is it precedent setting? Hi, Ellen. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are. This is an issue that is coming up. For the first time, you know, what do you do with your children when it's time to go back to school in the middle of a pandemic? And lawyers have actually been waiting for these decisions to come out because we don't have them. Right. So we foresaw that this was going to happen. Everyone's been waiting to see, you know, when were the decisions going to be reported? And they're starting to come out now. Um, and Chase was the first one. Chase was the first one in Ontario to be reported on this issue. So it's a big deal. Can you take me through any of the details of this case in particular? Sure. I mean, so, I mean, we've got a separated family who, you know, mother wanted the child to return to school and father wanted the child to stay um, and do online learning. And I think that they had joint custody um, or custody hadn't been decided one or the other, meaning one parent didn't have final decision making authority um, and they couldn't decide. So they took it to a judge. Right. And when you do that, you know, you have to you're asking a third party to now decide what is best for your child. A judge who doesn't know your child, a judge who doesn't know your life or your story, you know, you're asking the judge to now decide what to do with your child. And in this case, there's a lot of things for a judge to consider. Um, you know, we've got our laws on custody and access and what the judge is to look at. But the biggest thing here is, and you know what a lot of parents are doing and what happened in this case is the courts are essentially asking, excuse me, the parties are essentially asking the judge to say, listen, one of us agrees with the government plan and one of us doesn't. And you, judge, tell us, you know, what to do about this government plan. 
And the, the courts, there's now been a second decision release, actually. A second one just came out following Chase, where a second Ontario judge has ordered a six-year-old to be returned or to start in-person classes, same as this case. And the big theme coming out of these cases is the courts are not going to second-guess or evaluate whether what the government has said is correct or not. The judges are saying, listen, the government, who has way more resources than us, they've been meeting with experts, they've been meeting with medical professionals, they've had all of this insight that we don't have. The government has decided the children can go back. It is not our place to say that that is wrong and disagree with them. Mind you, the courts have to look at every single situation specifically, right? So when you read these decisions, every judge is saying that, but they're also saying, okay, now I need to look at this particular child, though, because it's always about what's best for that child. And is there anything about this case that, you know, might make it safer for the child to stay at home? So that's where we are right now. So, so you're saying that e- even though judges would be very reluctant to, you know, set a precedent where they're saying, no, the government plan is is not adequate, it, they could, in a particular individual case, say, well, this this child has asthma or some kind of underlying medical condition that would make them more susceptible and more at risk, and therefore I I agree, and the child, you know, does not have to go to school or or can do online learning. Exactly, right? When, when you're talking about family law, everything comes down to, and the big legal, legal term is the best interest of the child. It's always what is in the best interest of the particular child or children in that case. So that's exactly right. If there is something about that individual child or within that individual family, like objective, outside, you know, credible evidence, not just two parents taking unsubstantiated positions, which is stuff that happened in these cases, right? Both of these parents, one parent was saying, listen, here are all the reasons why it's completely unsafe for my child to return to school. And the other one is saying it's safe. And the judge was saying, well, I don't really have, I hear what you're saying, but I don't really have much to support what you're saying. So if you have a case, absolutely, where, you know, there is objective evidence of a child suffers, you know, an autoimmune disease or severe asthma or something like that, where this child could be at increased risk going back to school. You know, I, I expect that there would be a ruling that said, in this case, this child is not going to go back. I just, you know, as someone who has this kind of, you know, these conversa- ongoing conversations, you know, w- with an ex, and I'm so very fortunate we're on the same page and we've got great communication, it just... You know, it just saddens me that there are here are, you know, more than one couple, more than, you know, one set of parents who have decided that they they can't communicate to such a level they've actually had to go to a judge. That's so extreme. Well, and that's what the courts are starting to say in these decisions, too, right? Especially these are unprecedented times. These are things that are coming up for the first time. And the courts are saying, and you can see that Justice Himmel says it in the Chase decision. She says, please you know, work this out yourself. These are your children. These are huge issues. If there is a way for you to work this out yourself, even temporary plans, right? Like 
parents can agree and it's happening it's you know but people aren't hearing about it because it's they're not the cases that are going to court but it's happening where parents are agreeing okay listen despite our differences let's test it out you know for the first four weeks let's keep our child home let's see what happens for the first six weeks let's pick a date let's see how it goes right and the courts are really encouraging people to try to work it out themselves because things are so unsettled you know in these times or also you know try to use a different process like a mediation where you meet with a third party and come to a solution that works for you and your family. That's a compromise solution, you know, based on the two of you meeting with a third party and working it out as opposed to going to the court and asking the judge to decide. And I mean, they're there, they're there and they'll do it and they're going to, right. But they are asking people, you know, in these types of situations, try to work it out. Uh, speaking with Christy Marina, who is a family law lawyer, uh, and Christy, are you seeing, uh, you know, are, are, anecdotally, are a lot of people just renegotiating their settlements and their custody agreements because of COVID-19? Is it, it down to that granular level? It's not it's not so much a full, you know, let's completely renegotiate. If we've had some sort of final deal, let's completely renegotiate it and change the terms. It's more of a, you know, okay, this is what our agreement says, I get it, but can we work something else out? Just, you know, like I said, the perfect example is the parents deciding, listen, let's just, let's send our child, you know, we'll keep him or her home for four weeks. I know that, you know, you have decision-making or whatever, but let's agree to keep them home for a bit. So it's more people coming to their own uh, solutions that work for them right now, or, you know, people who don't have final orders in place yet and we're in the court process or we're trying to work it out are coming to solutions that just, you know, are what work for them right now. And they're not, you know, black and white binding deals, but they're what people are doing to, you know, avoid the courts if they can. Christy, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. You too. That is Christy Marina, who is a family lawyer with McDonald and Partners, talking about a new ruling, two rulings, in fact, from courts that say kids can go back to school. That The courts are saying we are not going to question the medical experts and the government experts that say school can reopen. And if you're a parent, whether or not you're separated, whether you're divorced, whether you're together, if you're trying to think about, well, geez, should I send my kids back to school? Does that put a thumb on the scale either way? That the court says, well, the experts are the experts. Or are you just as confused and torn as always? Well, perhaps maybe we'll get some clarity from Doug Ford coming up at his daily 1 o'clock news conference. Forget it, that's not going to happen. It's, I mean, you know, it's just going to be the same answers, and there's no answer that can make the uncertainty go away, and I think that's kind of the point of it, isn't it? I guess the question is, is how are you going to handle it? What kind of attitude are you going to bring to it? Are you going to bring an OG Ananobi attitude? I don't shoot trying to miss. I don't shoot trying to miss. I'm not just going to give it a shot. I'm just, I'm going to sink this bucket. I, I think it's a good plan. I think it's a good plan. Just take a shot and let the ball go in. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm begging now. <laughs> Thank you, Doug Ford. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.